Um, good evening, <laughs> one and all. Lovely to see you. Uh, welcome to the LSE on uh, Halloween, uh, as I notice it is. Um, thank you for coming. And uh, my name's Tony Travers from the Institute of Public Affairs. This is an event uh, which is co-hosted by the LSE's European Institute and, indeed, the IPA. Um, and as you'll see, it's no more cake and eat it, making a Brexit deal for workers. And the hashtag you can see here, hashtag LSE uh, Brexit. Uh, our guest this evening, who's going to talk on this subject, is uh, Francis O'Grady. And Francis is very welcome. Uh, Francis is General Secretary of the Trades Union Congress, post she's held since 2013. Previously, she was Deputy Secretary, has been an active trade unionist and campaigner all her working life, and has been employed in a range of jobs from shop floor to the voluntary sector. Previously, she had a number of other roles in the TUC, running campaigns, the TUC's organising academy, and the recruitment of a broader membership into the trades union uh, movement. The TUC currently represents around 6 million members. And before the TUC, uh, Francis worked for the Transport and General Workers Union, ran campaigns there, and has led on industrial policy, arguing the case for a strategic approach to rebalancing the economy in the wake of the financial crash. She's also been involved in a number of commissions concerning pay and conditions. Just before I hand over, I just want to say two or three words uh, by way of uh, introduction, because Brexit clearly affects all sectors of the economy, all industries, all parts of the UK and many individuals' lives. In this sense, I'm, I'm just guessing, I won't preempt what we're going to hear, the TUC and the CBI probably have closer views on this issue than many. I, mean, I don't want to preempt what we're about to hear. And it seems the big question for both sides of industry, or all of industry, uh, perhaps more appropriately put, is how the complex negotiations actually turn out. They're hard to follow, the negotiations. The UK government is keeping its position very much out of sight as a negotiating process uh, with very little publication of the position, or indeed no deal position, as we've seen in the press today. The only certainty is uncertainty. So against that backdrop, I'd like to ask Francis O'Grady uh, to come and address us this evening. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Tony, and thank you all for turning out uh, tonight. A special greeting to any trade union members amongst you, and a special greeting to all of those I hope will become trade union <laughs> uh, meetings. But thank you, Tony. Thank you for the uh, Institute and for the work that you do, demystifying the complex, sophisticated, finely tuned workings of the European Union, into which, of course, Britain has just uh, launched one almighty spanner. Um, and it's Brexit that I am going to focus on tonight, how we break the deadlock, the choices facing this country, and the deal that we need to protect workers' jobs, livelihoods, and rights. Now, as you said, the TUC represents around uh, 50 trade unions and together nearly 6 million members and we're the voice of workers in every part of the economy in universities, in manufacturing, finance, transport, communications, construction, social care, retail, the NHS and in our 
overworked, under-resourced civil service, although I see the government has just employed another 300 lawyers, uh, 300 so uh, clearly there's some job creation involved. <laughs> Uh, we're also members of the European TUC, which as a social partner enjoys a formal status. As democratic unions across Europe, under the ETUC banner, we reach common positions and try to speak with one voice. And that opens government doors for us uh, right across the capitals of Europe. Well, most doors. As I once told David Cameron, I'd met Angela Merkel more times than I'd met our own British Prime Minister. <clears throat> so the trade union movement has a unique capacity to influence both sides of the Brexit negotiating table and to help shape the final deal in the interests of working people across borders. One practical example of our success since the referendum is that the EU has mandated Monsieur Barnier to seek agreement for a level playing field on workers' rights. In other words, Brussels will be pressing the UK to agree that any final deal must include a guarantee that British workers' rights keep pace with improvements in the rest of the EU. And that red line only appears in the EU's negotiating guidelines because the TUC and the ETUC together lobbied for it. Now, it's well documented, I think, that the history of the TUC's relationship with what began life as the common market has never exactly been one of unconditional love. Uh, next year will be the 30th anniversary of Jacques Delors' famous speech to the TUC Congress in Bournemouth, his bid to win our support for the completion of the single market. He proposed a new social platform to guarantee that every worker would be covered by collective bargaining, uh, there would be worker participation in companies, and a universal right uh, to lifelong learning. The TUC's conversion to the European Union was conditional on the creation of that social market model. In other words, balancing the four freedoms with strong rights and protections for workers. Without that social dimension, the EU would be like any other trading bloc in the world, to coin a phrase, a capitalist club. Although it fell somewhat short of Jacques Delors' original vision, the Blair new Labour government did sign up to the social chapter, and that did improve working conditions for millions of workers. So fast forward to the run-up to the referendum and the TUC campaigned hard for a Remain vote. I had the dubious honour of taking part in the BBC's live Wembley debate where Boris Johnson, depending on your point of view, gave his famous or infamous Independence Day speech. And as we waited in the wings to go on, um, it felt a bit like the stage had been set for that old TV show, uh, Gladiators. In fact, the BBC told us not to worry about the noisy jeering and barracking that we, would, uh, we were expected to get, as it would be tuned out for viewers at home, uh, which we found very reassuring. Uh, 
Now, the TUC General Council hadn't come to our position on the referendum lightly. We had our own criticisms of the EU. The post-crash obsession with austerity when we believe the priority should have been investment to deliver more good jobs and public services. Uh, the Troika's, what I can only describe as disgraceful treatment of the programme countries and the failure to significantly strengthen protection for workers at a time of acute inequality and insecurity. But while we were critical of the European Union, we also had to think hard about where workers' best interests lay and for generations to come. We knew that the EU was often wrongly blamed for our own government's bad behaviour in Brussels, from seeking opt-outs on the maximum working week to opposing caps on bankers' bonuses and resisting action to prevent the dumping of cheap Chinese steel, it wasn't so-called Brussels bureaucrats, but UK ministers who should have been in the dock. The lie that, the EU, that EU state aid rules prevented nationalisation of the railways was all too evident when EU state-owned enterprises were increasingly taking over ours. And with the Conservative government in power that was already pushing through its Anti-Trade Union Act, we had to address what leaving the EU would really mean for people's rights at work. Union agreements, of course, collectivise and build on that floor of statutory rights which were won through the EU from paid holidays uh, to equal pay and pulled the rug from under them, we wondered how long before those union agreements would come under attack too. If we lost the strength of combining with unions in Germany, France and elsewhere uh, who had pushed for the EU to establish those minimum standards in the first place, the likelihood was that British workers would become even worse off. We also took a hard look at the evidence about what Brexit would mean for the livelihoods of the people that we represent, the real-life impact on jobs and investment. And we looked equally hard at the alternatives including those touted as potential partners for new trade agreements outside of the single market. What kind of trade deals would we get as an island nation compared to the combined bargaining power of the 28 members of the EU? What would we have to give up in exchange for quick, a quick post-exit bilateral deal? Would those new agreements open the way to even more privatisation of our public services? Would they, like the single market, provide a level playing field to stop a race to the bottom? Now, as a movement that prides itself on our negotiating nafs, our judgment was clear. Our General Council agreed that, on balance, workers' interests were best served by staying in the European Union. And working, and this is the critical bit, working with our union friends across Europe, politically and industrially, for a new vision of Europe, a new deal that got back to putting working people first. In the end, the result of the vote on the 23rd of June was close but clear. Six in ten trade unionists voted for Remain. We tracked our members' views throughout. But of course, we didn't win.
The morning after the vote, we made clear that we would respect the democratic decision of the British people to exit the EU. And then the debate became not about whether we leave, but how. And the focus shifted to questions that had never appeared on any ballot paper. Uh, whether leaving the EU also meant that we were leaving the single market and the customs union. And whether we should leave the EU without any replacement deal. For the TUC's part, we're clear that a no-deal hard Brexit would herald, on this evening of all evenings, a Halloween uh, horror show, a nightmare on Brexit Street, with the bad guys waiting in the shadows to slash jobs and workers' rights. We have argued for a transition deal to give more time to talk and prepare, and that during the transition, the UK would have to continue to play by the single market's rules. It's common sense, frankly. There simply isn't time to negotiate a whole new arrangement for that transition. Instead, that time should be used to focus on the big one, negotiating a new deal between the EU and UK, setting out trade arrangements for the long term. But as each day passes, the most important undertaking facing Britain since the war is increasingly relegated to the status of a Conservative Party soap opera. The government is divided, the cabinet is divided, and very often the Prime Minister herself seems to be in two minds. I've frankly lost count of how many ministers are briefing newspapers to get another minister sacked. The two generations, whether in power or in opposition, the Conservatives have been split down the middle on Europe. And now that psychodrama threatens to engulf our wider uh, body politic. We have a Prime Minister with no authority, a Brexit Secretary with no plan, and a Foreign Secretary who appears to issue his own personal red lines, apparently with impunity. The first principle of negotiation, certainly in my world, is that you need to know that the person leading the other side of the table has authority to do a deal. And it's not my intention to score party political points. Of course, there are also differences of opinion within the Labour Party, just as there are within the trade union movement and in business too although Labour has now adopted a very similar position on transition and, like us, is committed to keeping all options on the table. But it is the Prime Minister who is supposed to be in the driving seat and her Cabinet that is supposed to be taking collective responsibility for decisions. And at, a very time, at the very time when we need serious government most, the government seems to be in a shambles. Last year's referendum exposed deep divisions of class, age, region, education and wealth. But instead of reun reuniting the country, the PM's energy is consumed by just trying to keep the Conservative Party in one piece. Remember, the reason we had the referendum in the first place was not because of any great clamour in the country, 
but because David Cameron was spooked by the UKIP challenge to his right flank. And when his successor, Theresa May, called an early election to strengthen her personal mandate for Brexit talks, her vote of confidence was less than resounding. Post-election polls suggest that whichever way people voted in the referendum, they are losing confidence in this minority government's ability to get a good deal. Many feel that the government isn't listening to them, that it's in denial about the scale of the challenge we face and immune to the consequences for ordinary people's lives. So just over 500 days from now, the UK will be leaving the EU. Growth is slowing, inflation is at a five-year high, household debt is climbing, the pound is weak, the balance of trade is poor, and investment has declined sharply uh, since the start of this year. Already we're losing skilled jobs at the likes of BAE Systems and Vauxhall Motors. Yes, the rate of employment is still high, but too often the quality of jobs is low. And as the TUC reported last week, since the crash, real wages are down on average £38 a week. The government has refused to publish its own Brexit industry impact reports, or as we learned last week, even bothered to read them, presumably because they don't tell a great story. The TUC's own assessment, published in our How Are We Doing report, shows that in sector after sector, confidence is falling. We also have a conveners panel uh, drawn from workplaces of all shapes and sizes up and down the country. And that uh, panel reports real apprehension about the future of our relationship with Europe, worries about what it means for pay and pensions, apprenticeships as well as jobs, and it confirms CBI concerns that business is pulling back from long-term investment plans. Our economy is far from match fit for Brexit, and the government is making a bad situation worse. Three weeks ago, Theresa May again raised the prospect of leaving without a deal, what the TUC has called a kamikaze Brexit. And just last week, uh, the Prime Minister threw another curveball that the final de deal would have to be negotiated before transition kicks in. Meanwhile, in front of the Select Committee, the Brexit Secretary appeared to confirm that Parliament would get a vote on the deal, but only after we've left. <laughs> now, these misspeaks may be, but confusion reigns and confidence is faltering. There is a real risk of a disastrous default to World Trade Organization rules, hitting manufacturing and leaving services, which are the bulk of our economy, out in the cold. I believe that people are tired of puerile no-deal threats and pie-in-the-sky promises. They want politicians to start some straight talking, and that means that the government must level with the British public about the choices and the compromises that lie ahead. And the harsh realities are these. Britain can't have the promised, quote, exact same benefits from the single market 
without playing by the rules or paying our dues. We can't leave the single market and still have an open border with, in Ireland. The government has never even got close to cutting immigration to the tens of thousands and in or out of the single market has no appetite to do so. And yes, alternative trading partners would drive their own hard bargains with plenty of their own unattractive strings attached. So no, our future doesn't lie in walking into the sunset uh, with Donald Trump, so to speak, hand in tiny hand, um, as the threat to Bombardier in Belfast showed, America first means everyone else a poor second. In summary, the truth is that trade deals are no different from any other aspect of life. We can't have our cake and eat it. So how do we get out of this mess and move forward? Firstly, the negotiations need to make urgent progress on citizens' rights, the Irish border, and money. But it is very difficult to make progress when there is no conservative clarity or consensus about what they want. Now, I want to be clear that I believe leading, believe you me, leading negotiations at the best of times is not easy, and everyone, I think, knows that. But I do think that we have now reached the point when the Conservatives alone have proved inadequate for the task ahead. They are unable to put the national interest before their own bitterly factional ones, and frankly, their dependence on the DUP doesn't help either. Not just Theresa May, but the whole country is now being held to ransom by 30 or so hard Brexit diehards. And the Prime Minister needs to break free. There is a way through for Mrs May, but it would take political courage, imagination and skill. The way is this. Instead of pretending that the Conservatives can unite the whole of the UK's interests, the Prime Minister should bring together a negotiating team that genuinely represents the whole country. Let's call it Team UK. Cross-party, business and unions, every nation at the table. That would force all of us to focus on the realities of the negotiation. The real priorities, in our view, of protecting jobs and investments the necessary trades and compromises, and the price we would pay if we fail. Secondly, we need to stop the posturing around no deal and get real. The Resolution Foundation says a no deal Brexit would leave families over £500 worse off, with the lowest income families hit hardest. Businesses are shifting their HQs, car manufacturers are worried, construction is contracting. And the OECD has warned that a hard Brexit combined with our poor productivity and export performance would mean long-term decline. The nuclear diplomacy of leaving without a deal may appease hard Brexiteers, but it would be a disaster for the United Kingdom, for England, Wales, Scotland, and of course, 
Northern Ireland, because a hard Brexit would inevitably mean a hard border. Now, the government claims it's going to come up with uh, an unprecedented solution for the Irish border, although apparently they have yet to share this unprecedented solution with the Taoiseach. The, uh, the DUP has ruled out calls for any form of unique status for Northern Ireland, something that matters for Gibraltar too. And instead, Transport Secretary Chris Grayling has talked about an electronic border. Well, that may sound more attractive than the other solution he suggested, which involved turning the M20 into a lorry park, but unfortunately, he seemed unaware that David Davis had already admitted that a technological fix to the border was just, and I quote, blue sky thinking. The Irish customs authorities used somewhat plainer language in their recently leaked report. They said that if Britain leaves the single market and the customs union, that an open border would be impossible. Over the years, uh, the TUC has worked very closely with uh, the Irish Congress to bring together workers across sectarian divides, and we know how precious but how fragile peace can be. Trade unions were involved closely in supporting the process, which eventually led to the Good Friday agreements, along with other uh, civic society players. And we've campaigned hard for decent jobs and opportunities for both communities by which peace is sustained. Many people who live in Northern Ireland work in the Republic and vice versa. One railway and around 200 road cross, roads cross the border and they're used by up to 35,000 people every day. This is critical to jobs, growth and stability. If you take something like construction, an industry that employs 65,000 workers in Northern Ireland alone and contributes nearly $2.5 billion to the UK economy. Almost half of uh, Northern Ireland's small and medium-sized firms, construction firms, buy uh, building materials from the Republic. And almost a third of firms employ people based across the border. The industry is already struggling with the economic uncertainties unleashed by the referendum last year, and no deal could tip it over the edge. So to my third point, we need a deal. We need to make jobs, investment and trade our clear negotiating priorities, and we need to find the best trade model to deliver that. People want to know that their jobs will be safe, that their livelihoods are secure, that the rights and services on which they depend are guaranteed for the future, and they want to hear a sensible, smart, realistic plan to deliver it. Remember, the EU accounts for half of UK trade, and with the recovery from the Euro crisis, the latest figures show our dependence on trade with EU countries is rising, not falling. For workers and the companies that employ them, these are deeply uncertain times. Now, earlier this year, my counterpart at the Confederation of British Industry, Carolyn Fairburn, set out how membership of the Single Market and Customs Union ensures that her members trade easily, quickly, and seamlessly.
and how millions of jobs depend on it. I agree. That's why the TUC has called for a sensible approach to Brexit, with fair, tariff-free and frictionless trade at its heart. The TUC is also calling for action in the next budget to Brexit-proof the economy, including infrastructure investment, skills investment, an industrial strategy, and a proper migration impact fund. But for the final deal, we do need to keep all options on the table. The UK should not be boxing itself in by ruling out continuing membership of the single market and customs union for the future. We need to keep our options open, not close them down. And the top test should be coming up with a deal that protects jobs, investment and workers' rights. Now, some people say that um, sticking with the single market means abiding by the rules on freedom of movement, and that just won't fly. One of the reasons for the Leave campaign's success last summer was that it ruthlessly tapped into concerns about immigration and specifically the impact on wages on schools, hospitals and housing. But at a time when net migration is falling, but economic woes are mounting, I sense a shift in opinion. I know freedom of movement is a contentious issue, and for many groups of workers and in many parts of the country, I can understand why. The government has allowed employers to profit from cheap labour. Austerity has put public services under huge pressure, and migrants have ended up being scapegoated. But other governments have shown that it is possible to be part of the single market and manage migration fairly by guaranteeing local people good local job opportunities, by making employers respect the rate for the job and collective agreements with unions, and by raising the minimum wage and stamping out exploitation. There is nothing to stop the UK government doing the same. And just a word, too, about the right to remain for EU citizens who have raised families here, worked, paid their taxes, uh, been part of the community often for many years. And the same goes for expats in the EU. Uh, as I've said, the TUC and CBI don't always agree. But on this, we have issued a joint statement. We believe that it's time to stop playing human poker with people's lives. No ifs, no buts. Commit to an unconditional right for those people to remain. And this takes me straight into what must be our final priority, and that is around workers' rights. We want to secure crucial rights at work which stem from our membership of the EU, rights that UK and European unions campaigned for and won, and rights upon which millions of working people depend, doubly so at a time in an age of zero hours and insecurity. So paid holidays, equal pay for work of equal value for women, Limits on working hours, stronger health and safety protection, better maternity rights, equal treatment for part-time and temporary workers. 
Now, of course, the Prime Minister has pledged not only to protect, but to enhance workers' rights after Brexit. And as a trade unionist, I like promises, but I prefer guarantees, particularly when prominent members of the Cabinet and, indeed, the new Brexit Minister in the Lords made clear during the lead-up to the referendum that they saw Brexit as an opportunity to drive down workers' rights. And when the EU withdrawal bill falls far short of the safeguards that we need, MPs won't have the chance to debate changes to employment or equality law, and so-called Henry VIII powers give ministers the chance to force through contentious legislation without due parliamentary scrutiny and process. So it seems that the UK is taking back control, but not to give it to the people or Parliament. Trade unions want a level playing field on rights between the UK and the EU, not just on the face of the bill, but in, at the heart of the deal. Britain mustn't become a cheap labour sweatshop off the coast of Europe, and Brit British workers should enjoy the same protections as their friends in France, Germany and elsewhere, and they must be index-linked for the future, so that now and in the future, businesses can't compete unfairly by worsening workers' rights. Just as any trade deal requires sticking to minimum standards set for goods and services, we want the same protection for labour standards too. Staying in the single market and customs union would be the best and easiest way to do that. It would protect long-term economic interests, jobs and rights. Now, if there's a better answer, then the TUC is ready to listen. But the government is wrong to rule out that option when it has so patently failed to come up with a convincing alternative. I'll end with this. Over almost four decades, the balance of power has tilted dangerously away from labour to capital. We've seen inequality rocket, living standards stagnate, and especially for young people, insecurity at work has become the new normal. And that has to change. Unions are determined that whichever way they voted, workers must not pay the price for Brexit. Our message to government and politicians of all colours is simple. Get our approach to Brexit wrong, and it won't be the likes of Liam Fox and Boris Johnson who suffer. It will be working people and our communities. Get it right, and we have a chance to build a fairer, more equal country, and indeed a fairer, stronger social market in Europe too. So the core test for a deal here should be simple. What's best for working people is best for Britain. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Francis. I'm about to, uh, we'll take some questions now. There's plenty of time for questions. But just as a, an opener... I mean, what access have you and your colleagues at the TUC had um, to Department for Exiting the European Union, international trade and so on? Do you get 
polite meetings with ministers and officials? Or I mean, how, how, do they, how do they approach you and how do you approach them? Uh, we do have meetings. Uh, I can confirm none of them have taken place in a country retreat in the the way that uh, others may have experienced. Uh, But we do, I mean, the the TUC, everybody knows the history. Uh, It's clear where our values lie. But our job is to represent working people, whoever's in power. Mm -hmm. Our job is to uh, try and do the best that we can in terms of working people's interests. So, yes, we have had meetings. Uh, We've also had lots of meetings in Europe and around Europe with heads of government too. So, as I was trying to say in the speech, we've got quite a unique uh, position because it is drawn from the solidarity of unions across Europe. And as the, um, well, assuming they do, as the bills go through Parliament, including the one that's currently becalmed, I mean, are you working with members of Parliament to try to um, ensure that those pieces of legislation are at least as robust as the existing, the pre-existing position, or even allowing you to put down amendments to go further? Yeah, absolutely. We are briefing again um, across Parliament in the Commons and the Lords and clearly some of our suggestions uh, are more warmly greeted in some quarters than others. But um, although I think it's going to become very interesting because I think there is growing concern again uh, across the parties about railroading through a bill without proper scrutiny and account. Okay, very good. Right, now I'll take uh, two or three questions. One here, one, two hands I saw, so lady on the front, then gentleman in the blue shirt there. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, Linda Corsha. Um, I see we're still talking about the EU like it's an entity instead of a, a constantly expanding strategy into very cheap, cheaper and cheaper labour markets um, labour market countries, um, w- which uh, is what it's intended to do. Uh, it seems to me that union careerists, not uh, grassroots people, but union careerists pretty much precipitated Brexit by the failure to acknowledge and respond to the reserve army of labour situation that is created by free movement with cheaper and cheaper labour countries and um, very much the basis of what you've, you've talked about, the shift in the balance of power. And, and, and the TUC still doesn't seem to have come good on that. And yet you, you criticise the government's failure to control immigration. That seems to me like, where do you stand, you know? Um, so maybe you should look a bit closer to home to, when you're concerned about people's confidence um, whether it's confidence in, uh, in the union leadership. I think there, uh, there should be... I think the TUC has similarly let people down year after year after year on international trade agreements and not taking the sort of stance on dodgy trade agreements that we've been dragged into. Um, I think I, I agree with you that there should be some sort of um, Team UK wartime style coalition government however when that was put out there uh, Corbyn rejected it with sort of smarty arsey remarks about look at our manifesto 
Okay, very good. And a gentleman there. Oh, and I'll take a third here then. Yeah, yes, my name's Michael Warhurst. I head up a, an environmental NGO that works on chemicals policy called ChemTrust. Uh, we're a UK-registered charity, but we mainly work at EU level, so we have all sorts of Brexit issues. Um, one thing I've really noticed uh, since the vote, the work you've been doing and the TUC has been doing, that you've been unashamedly talking to both sides. You have been talking to heads of government around Europe, um, which is absolutely the right thing to do because the EU27 are the more powerful partner in this process. Um, but you're quite unusual among civil society in this country in doing that. What do you think makes it easier for you to do it, and what do you think other civil societies should be doing? And is it only because you're not f afraid of the Daily Mail? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and third one here. Yes, thank you. Uh, David Williamson, uh, currently retired. <laughs> uh, hopefully not for long. <laughs> but uh, in terms of the becalmed bill, uh, the, the withdrawal bill, because I, for one, am not at all confident that we're going to get the wonderful, um, seamless uh, trade deal with the EU that, that everybody would people say they want, but I don't think we'll get it, simply because at the end of the day, if, you, if you're going to have that, we're going to have to accept the jurisdiction of the ECJ, and, 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 I, and I can't see, I can't see the, Tory, the Tory government ever agreeing to that. In that case, if, we, if, if, if it worst came to worst and we, had an, uh, we just left, they're, they're saying they're going to incorporate the EU regulations into British law, but then there's nothing to stop. A, a, certainly a Tory government, exactly. later on, even, even with, if, certainly if they have a majority in Parliament, from just wiping out any gain, anything, anything that we have at present, which is currently guaranteed by Adminfish for the EU and, and enforceable under the ECJ, we'd have no one to turn to. And I can't see... I can't see if it, the Supreme Court is not going to overturn a decision of Parliament. They won't overturn the decision of a minister, but not Parliament. So, three issues there. One is um, perhaps a failure to respond to some of the concerns of your own members about cheap labour and so on, and then one about your access to ministers and the one we just heard. Yeah. I mean, it, without doubt, um, during the course of the campaign where, you know, three of our unions uh, campaigned to leave... Mm. Uh, the vast majority and the TUC's position was uh, to remain. Uh, but we also agreed amongst ourselves that there were, if you like, certain principles and values that we would stick to uh, whichever side of the debate we were on. And, and it was, you know, I mean, I remember going up to um, the car plant in Sunderland where, you know, you would have thought it was, I'm familiar with the car industry, um, you would have thought that this was an area of clear economic self-interest um, that people would want to remain. And I remember being personally quite kind of taken aback. This is not a high immigration area, by the way. Uh, something else was going on there. Um, and without doubt, as loads and loads of people have said, in many ways that vote was a massive two fingers up um, to... Uh, an establishment that many working people felt had taken no interest in them, their lives were tough, uh, their opportunities for their children were poor, wages, you know, holding a referendum when real wages are falling, 
suggests the political establishment was out of touch with what was going on in people's real lives. But I, I will also say this, that uh, I think as one of the strengths of a trade union movement is that we have a generational wisdom. So when it comes to arguments about reserve armies of labor, we know this isn't the first time we've been here. And we know that if it wasn't migrants being blamed, it would be young people being blamed or part-time workers being blamed or somebody else being blamed. And so we have always taken the view that our strength comes from organizing workers, whatever passport they hold, whatever age, whatever race, whatever nationality. Um, and by the way, we have campaigned again, uh, both as the TUC and through the ETUC, very, very hard on TTIP, for example, and CETA and in particular uh, about uh, concerns around trade agreements leading, opening the way to privatization of uh, public services, worsening labor standards, and secret courts where workers have no parity of rights compared to rich corporations in terms of seeking redress. Is there more that we could have done? Sorry. Well, Believe you me, I think we, we, um, we are not complacent. Our kind of culture as a movement that comes from working people is not one of uh, we did great on everything. We're self-critical, but we worked our socks off because we could see what was coming, that this campaign was being led by... Um, of course, it was across the spectrum, but it was being led and funded by the hard right, and we were concerned about where that was taking us. Um, in terms of Michael's point about civic society, and um, you know, again, it is one of our strengths as a democratic membership movement that gives us a kind of uh, sustainability, if you like, through good times and bad, um, and. Uh, and it also keeps our feet on the ground um, in a way that, you know, other organizations uh, are more issue-based and have a different, perhaps different culture. But um, I think now is the time, actually more importantly than ever, for those links to be made. And certainly, you know, as a trade union movement, we are committed that whatever happens in the end, as I was saying to Tony earlier, there will be no toxic from our European friends. Uh, as a trade union movement, we uh, will continue to play an active part in that movement. And then just finally on David, on the... Um, I mean, I, uh, I hear what you say about the ECJ, and again, you know, I wondered how many of us had really paid much attention to the ECJ, where, and then it suddenly becomes this symbol of sovereignty and... Uh, uh, Certainly, I don't remember the UK losing too many times uh, as a government. Uh, yes, yes, well, exactly, exactly, good point. I mean, I was pleased that the um, Prime Minister appeared in the House of Commons to accept that during the transition period, uh, Britain would have to continue to abide by ECJ rulings, which... Um, she seemed to do almost casually or kind of... But, but was it clear? Well, I don't no, know. I, the I frowned <laughs> at you is that I, some, somebody in the audience will be able to explain that. What I couldn't understand about that is, if we're not in the EU, does that mean that and the law is all the UK's law? Does that mean the European... 
Court of Justice will be able to rule on UK law? Well, Owen Tudor from our <laughs> department is here. He may have an answer for that. Kevin. Uh, Kevin Featherstone, head of the European Institute. Uh, it also raises the question of whether in that two-year transition period are we bound by new EU law, as it were, or do we somehow freeze the obligations at the beginning of, um, of the transition period? I'm interrupting, but I have a question. No, no I interrupted. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, we're, we're hoping not, because there are new rights on family-friendly rights and on posted workers that would... Um, strengthen uh, and deal with some of the concerns that people have about undercutting of wages coming through and we're urging the government to vote for them. We'll see. Okay, uh, I can see a hand at the back there and two at the front. Hi. Um, thanks for that. It was, it was really interesting. Um, I, just, I just wonder if considering that your official position was remain and Labour's official position was also remain but it was kind of felt that they perhaps didn't campaign as passionately as they could have done. Do you feel any kind of lingering frustration about that? Um, and I guess my sort of second question would be do, would you support a second referendum on the terms of an actual deal, and if so, would you also push the Labour Party to support uh, a second referendum? Okay, question about the links with the Labour question. Party. Yeah, very good. <laughs> and there's two next door here. Uh, Paul McGrail, Peace News. Um, to my knowledge, it's the first time ever that the TUC, uh, CBI, uh, City of London, uh, Lloyd Blankfein included, Labour Party, all on one side, versus, I, I honestly don't know, except for uh, maybe 40 Tory MPs and their donors. Um, and in that context, I'm wondering if your meetings in Brussels, and, I, and yesterday, Ken Clark, uh, Andrew Adonis, and Nick Clegg met with Michel Barnier. Given that um, that, that that situation, if in the, ne in the coming months, if things don't set, uh, negotiations don't go well, if, the, if you s see the possibility of more accusations along the lines of uh, enemies of the people and saboteurs, in other words, if you could be um, tagged with this uh, fifth column, you know, people meeting out, Groups meeting outside of the negotiations um, and being seen in certain portions of the media as being um, un as undermining the British government position. Okay. Hi, yeah, Mike Roberts. Um, I'm from local government as well as many other things which Francis is aware of. Um, two points. One, uh, a comment. One of the aspects, you know, as somebody who uh, came up a few weeks before the June referendum for re-election, um, it was quite clear in my own area, which is a deprived area, not in the leafy parts of the southeast, but in one of the more challenged towns called Aldershot in the southeast, 
um, there was a complete disconnect with the political establishment on the doorstep. The good news, I got re-elected um, for my 42nd year on the local council. But I could detect that we were not engaged with the people on, on the doorstep. Um, and I think the point has already been made about that. And that's something I think that uh, we really need to take on board. So whatever was being said in the London arena through the news and media was not been coming back with those people. And, and to, sorry, to, not to interrupt you, but what was the nature, do you think, while you were campaigning, what was the nature of the sense of disengagement or whatever well, what the, this the, was about? You know, there, there was um, a lack of uh, disinterest, um, a lack that they were, you know, even me, who's engaged with the people in my own ward, um, who actually was brought up in that particular ward, um, and they all know me, but there was a complete lack of engagement. It's almost as if it was um, surreal. And I've never felt that in the whole 42 years I've represented them. Mm. Um, so there must be something that was happening. Um, but you don't know what it was? I'm not well, saying no, you no. should. I, no. I, you know, okay, I was, I was glad to get re-elected again, but, uh, as always. But there, there was that disconnection. And I think you know, what happened in Sundon, what happened in other places seemed to be part of a, a yeah. wider disinterest, etc. Okay. And even in the areas like Margate and, and places like that. But my, my one point, um, I, I put on my hat uh, being a supporter of Client Earth on this one, is that now we know there are all these sector studies which the government is refusing to publish because they may be very explosive. Um, and not in their best interest um, as regards outturn effects. Is it not something, Francis, that you, the CBI and others, could actually go to the Supreme Court and get a ruling to actually force the government to publish what we all need to know? The if we're going to have transparency, let's have full transparency. Okay, and an invitation to go to law there <laughs> was popular. I mean, just, just to respond to your core point, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised, really, should we? When we look at what's happened since the financial crash, when we look at the fact that there was no new agenda, we were seeing the rise of zero hours, the uh, rise of insecurity at work, real wages falling. Um, you know, a lot of people were feeling kicked about by the system and felt very little uh, faith in politicians. We'd had the expenses scandal. We'd, you know, I mean, there was, there was a lot churning around there. And of course, what was critical in that referendum was people turning out to vote who hadn't turned out to vote uh, for a very long time. And that was the opportunity that they took to express how content they were or not with the way uh, that uh, Britain was going. So, you know, again, you know, in terms of history, I'll be honest, I see these as dangerous times, not just in this country, but in many other countries too. And uh, we've seen some very, very ugly but familiar forces unleashed. Uh, and that's what happens when the economy doesn't deliver for people and people felt justice was not done following that financial crash. 
Um, so, um, and I am very conscious that the uh, freedom of information requests repeatedly have been turned down, and no doubt, I'm sure we haven't been looking at a legal route, but I wouldn't be surprised if others weren't. <laughs> um, uh, the point about is there a risk of uh, being positioned as unpatriotic? I mean, again, this is another area, isn't it, where we've had a a sort of contest as to what it means to be patriotic and you know uh, frankly my loyalties lie to the people that we represent and um, getting the best deal that we can for them um, I mean I, I think what's kind of I think one of the problems more generally in terms of this where do we go from here is that nobody quite knows how things are going to turn out from one week to the next. We have an extremely weak government. I mean, even in recent days with the stories about sexual harassment and the lists, apparent lists circulating, you, you kind of wonder, is that going to force a cabinet reshuffle or are we going to see... Uh, you know, what's going to happen? Uh, what would happen? The DUP don't always have a very stable record in terms of um, sticking to arrangements that they've agreed. Uh, they already flex their muscles a little bit on public sector pay. Uh, who knows when that rug might be pulled from beneath the government? Million, billion, million. Yeah, and in what instalments and where does it end up? I mean, there are, you know, big questions, real events that could kind of blow uh, the government off course. I think you're seeing that increasingly in the fact that Labour is spending more time in Brussels. There are more meetings going on. Um, you know, I hope to meet uh, Michel Barnier myself shortly. Our General Secretary of the ETUC already has. Um, and I think, to be fair, as I was trying to say, as a simple trade unionist, when I'm involved in negotiations, if you're not sure that that person on the other side of the table is even going to be there, you know, in a few weeks, or maybe that they want their boss's job, or, you know, it makes it very difficult to um, progress sensible negotiations. So... Uh, I mean, that is why genuinely, right at the start, the TUC said, look, uh, this shouldn't be dealt with on a party political basis. Um, there should be a bold uh, step to bring together, for Britain to be seen to be bringing together the different interests. This wasn't a 70-30 result. This was 52-48. Um, there needs to be a bit of a realism that that is going to involve some kind of compromise to build a consensus to bring the country back together. And, of course, it's not just the TUC that was calling for that approach. Uh, William Hague, the former uh, leader of the Conservative Party, also called for it. And I suspect there are others, too, who are thinking we are getting to the stage where we may need to take a different approach if these negotiations are to progress. What about the point about the, the, the Labour Party, which, um, you know, it's the Conservatives are in government and it is a sort of drama for them, there's no doubt about that, and it's an ongoing one. It's, you know, damaged Conservative leaders one after another. But the truth is the Labour leadership was a bit lukewarm at best. Some of it probably didn't actually want to stay. I mean, though I, I think Jeremy Corbyn said he voted to remain. So there's a sort of 
uncertainty there too, and that there would be, if, if Labour somehow got into office, which heaven knows it might given what's going on suddenly, wouldn't they face exactly the same problems that Labour and the TUC are also split? I, I think that would have been a, a fair charge to make uh, earlier on. Okay. I think over the summer and since, uh, Labour's position has become very clear. In, you know, it is very similar to ours. That the sensible thing is to have a transition on the same terms, uh, play by the rules, uh, focus on what your real priorities are, and then find the best model to deliver it. And at this stage, we have used the same phrase, keep all options on the table. I think when it comes to, you also made that point about a second referendum, um, which it, that isn't something that the TUC has called for, but we have called for accountability. And I, again, you know, as a negotiator, the idea that I could draw up my own pay claim, run off to negotiate it with an employer, and never have to come back to my membership uh, is, you know, would be stretching it. I wouldn't stay in the job for long, frankly, as a negotiator. So whatever mechanism that is, and I'm very clear that Parliament has to have a role, and actually... This is my personal view, but I would much prefer complex, big issues to be settled in Parliament rather than through referenda in general. Um, but I, you know, I, I think for us, we're focused on our top priority at the moment is trying to deal with what we see as uh, wild um, interests in terms of those pushing for no deal that's a real threat and that's, that's our kind of priority to deal with that in the first instance. Okay, right. Uh, take um, one, two, three. Yeah, one, two, three. Actually, I'll come to you. What, so one, two, two women here and one man at that. Thank you. Um, I'm a um, European citizen, EU, and just have a citizen living in, uh, in London. And uh, I have worked many years for the European Union, so I have been following uh, the Brexit-related debate from different perspectives. Perspective of somebody living here, and perspective of someone who knows um, rather well uh, the working of uh, the European Union from the inside. I have listened with a lot of attention to your uh, depiction of the situation. Uh, I agree with your analysis, um, I think your analysis is very clear and very logical. What I have been trying to find in your uh, expose is a possible way out. When you said we have 500 days, we don't have 500 days. We have barely one year, and the task ahead, uh, the ambition that has been put into the task ahead, does not relate in the minimum to the time that is available, to the intentions of the government, and to the aims of people who want to protect uh, the environment, workers' rights, etc. I have a very genuine question for you. It's not a provocative question. How bad does it have to get for the workers, for the people in the street, before politicians, trade unions, and public figures start admitting that Brexit is a big mistake. The result of the referendum has been implemented. We have acted democratically. 48-52% um, 
is statistically rather insignificant, but the advice, the advice of the British electorate has been followed. We are now talking about the details, the real implementation, and the problems are just starting to emerge. We are still talking about the general objectives. We are not talking about the implementation. I used to do project management. In project management, you start from general objectives and you go down. We are still talking about general objectives. So how bad does it have to get? Uh, it's not provocative. Yeah. What needs to happen for people to say, sorry, it was the wrong advice? Yeah. Okay. And then straight ahead of you. Thank you. Rosalind Scott, I have a tech startup. And on the topic of employment, um, there's the current situation of Brexit. But in the tech community in particular, we're, we're already starting to talk quite seriously about the impact of AI and robotics, as well as the increasing um, age for retirement. So you have individuals with chronic illnesses um, being forced to work. Uh, and so my, my question is, um, is, is Brexit just so difficult that we have to um, discuss it in its own silo? Um, and at what point do we begin to um, talk about the impending um, potential opportunities or disasters with AI and robotics as well as the um, increasing retirement age? It's true, Brexit is crowding out absolutely all of the consideration of everything. And there was a man at the back, and then I'll come down to some more questions here in the next round. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, uh, I know you touched on it already, but is there Aurora's contracts? I mean, is that British law or is that European law? Because, I, I mean, it shouldn't really be going on at this, you know, in the 21st century. And what has the TUC done about it? I mean, I know they have had meetings and stuff with... Um, why isn't the TUC rallying its members? You've got six million. Why don't, you, why don't we see them on the streets on a Saturday afternoon outside Sports Direct and, you know, just getting this to stop? Okay. More activity required. <laughs> More campaigning and organising. Yeah, well, on, on that, you know, are you a union member? Fantastic. Which one? Fantastic. So you know about the brilliant work that Unite has done in organising workers uh, in Sports Direct. Well, that was... Zero, in relation to zero hours yeah, contracts. Yeah, absolutely, work. because many of those workers, as you know, were on zero hours contracts. Same in McDonald's, a first ever strike. Um, and uh, as a movement, we have been uh, demanding uh, the right for workers to have guaranteed hours of work. It's uh, what we've called a new deal for working people, respect, fair wages, £10 minimum wage, uh, and the right to guaranteed hours. Nobody should be employed on zero-hours contracts. But the implication, just to interrupt you, Francis, the implication yeah. is that under UK and EU law, this that law happened. hasn't kept up hasn't with the change it. in the labour market. Exactly. Is that right? Absolutely, and I would agree with you. And, uh, you know, wh why was... Uh, support for the EU so lukewarm because actually they had missed opportunity after opportunity to show that they were the champions of working people and that that social dimension was alive and well. 
you know, why were people fed up more generally? Because they had every reason to be fed up because uh, we have seen inequality grow and we have seen life get a lot tougher, particularly for the new generation of workers. So I don't think any of this comes as a surprise. You're right to challenge us, not just the trade union movement. What is we as people doing to um, change this, to organize and change it. So um, I would agree with you, but it is something that takes all of us to make happen. And certainly from a trade union perspective, what do I want to do? What's the best way that we've uh, challenged unfairness traditionally? We get out and organize people. That's how we stop uh, people being undercut or being exploited. We get out there and we campaign for the right for the job. Um, on, I also very much agree on this frustration that we've got all these other massive challenges of uh, technological change, whether that's a threat or whether it's a liberating opportunity. It could be. Um, we've got climate change hasn't gone away. Demography, all of these big, big issues that are being uh, displaced by uh, what feels like, I'm sure, particularly from, for those looking from outside of um, Britain, this sort of British obsession um, with Brexit to the exclusion of everything else. Um, I mean, the, that bigger question about what does it take to change the public mood and how bad does it have to get? I mean, again, I... Uh, certainly, you know, the lessons we learned from the referendum, that if we try and uh, project what we think will happen, people don't trust experts, people don't, um, aren't moved in the same way by facts and figures. Um, they, uh, they want to know what it means in their lives. And when things are pretty rubbish to start with, the advice that it could get worse doesn't have the same resonance. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was, there was this kind of story I was told from, you know, one person who was campaigning for Remain again in the Northeast, and, you know, the, he's got his script, the re official Remain campaign, which we had our own criticisms of, uh, which only talked about business and the economy, and we weren't quite sure how this was going to go down on the doorstep but you know he's there with his prompt sheet from the remain campaign knocks on the door a guy opens the door and his track is he reads out his script about don't risk it by voting to leave and the guy looks at him and says do i look like i've got anything to risk you know <laughs> it was just that kind of what again one of those moments when you realize how the distance that had opened up really, from ordinary people's lives. Um, I mean, I, I do sense there is a bit of a shift. I know that as human beings, most of us, whichever side we're on, don't easily like to admit maybe we got this one wrong. And uh, the temptation is always to justify and justify whichever way we were on a position. Um, but I, I, what I do sense is that the concern about family debt rising, wages, quality of jobs, that is beginning to go up the agenda in a way that perhaps it should have gone up the agenda during that official campaign and been a little bit less about businesses' ability to trade and a bit more about people's pay packets. 
Okay, uh, take one, two, three here now. Thanks. It was uh, an excellent speech. Thank you. Um, your phrase, your key phrase, is a Brexit for jobs. And that made me wonder what does that mean in practice. It sounds as if the, you're prioritizing staying in the single market and staying in the customs union. And that sounds like the Norwegian model. Uh, but, of course, many in Norway then complain that we don't have choice, we don't have accountability, uh, and our democratic uh, system is being undermined. So, by committing to a Brexit for jobs, are we saying that there is a trade-off and we're willing to put economic interest above the interest of uh, politics, democracy, accountability? And gentlemen here, and then over there. Thank you, Francis. Uh, I'm a software engineer, and I want to build on the uh, the question about AI, which the lady there posed. I'm my my question is actually, um, the TUC certainly is doing the right job in protecting workers' rights. But how does this protect workers' rights? Workers' rights goes hand in hand in protecting consumers' rights. Let me give you a little bit more of a context, because one thing we do know in certain is that corporations trying to survive will try pushing harder and harder towards automation, yes? And we, we can see that, for instance, these days banks, these days do not give you, you know, much opportunity to speak with, to speak with agents anymore. And there are cases which we, um, we as consumers try very hard to speak to someone to get some services or get some issues sorted out, but the service provider just do not give a telephone number listed or something like that. So it is, I, I, th I think, the way that corporations or companies mm. who try to survive is, is to try to, uh, you know, cut as much job as possible, replacing them with robots. Is there, and in this case, as I have explained, this is one of the reasons that consumer rights or the ex customer experience could be impacted. In this case, would there be a case that the protection of workers' rights, if they, have a, if they, if they still have a job, that is, goes hand-in-hand hand with consumers' right or like the right to speak to a person to get things sort of out or however you put it that way. Okay, very good. And just behind you there. Hello, yes. Um, so this might seem like quite an unusual question, um, but do you think that uh, Brexit um, is a proxy debate between two different moral frameworks, uh, one good or bad, the other weak or strong? Blimey. <laughs> unravel that just a little bit. Unravel the question just a fraction. It's an interesting question, but explain just a fraction more what you're, what you're getting at. Um, okay, I mean, there's, there's probably many different ways of put, putting this. Um, uh, l let me put it like this. Uh, so you could say, on the one hand, um, you, um, all, all economies are underpinned by social precepts. Um, one kind of social um, model is a, a Darwinistic model of the weak and the strong. Uh, the other is a kind of religious mo model of the good or the bad. Um, as I understand it, in my opinion, um, all economies need social precepts to under, underpin them. Um, um, unless, you, If you don't have that, you, you have the financial crisis. Uh, um, um, that's as best as I, as I can put it, I think. Okay, I mean, it's certainly... A, it's certainly a, 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 you 
posit the ends of spectra, two spectrums there. I mean, it is definitely a binary issue. But so, um, anyway, I, Francis. I, I, a, a different way to think about it might be, is it underpinned by a just transition or shock and greed? And um, we were talking about this just before we came down, that, you know, there, there is a school of thought uh, that uh, our model of capitalism wants to be able to rip away, in which case kick away some of the barriers like workers' rights and other inconvenient obstacles uh, to some of the big revolutions that we're seeing in technology and so on. And, you know, particularly when you look at where a lot of the investment is coming for the digital economy, it's libertarian American money, uh, which does influence the way people behave. So maybe that's, I like your, I like your thinking though. <laughs> You're, I will come up with some um, other alternatives on that. But I, yeah, we have argued for a just transition, whatever happens. Um, again, in terms of our kind of top priorities, it's jobs and rights. So in a sense, this isn't a kind of a competition between uh, just the economy and society. It's all politics. It's because actually we want to, uh, we want good jobs that are um, protected by decent rights and decent livelihoods. Um, so it's, I think... <laughs> I think... I think that is certainly one model that we should be looking at because, again, as a, as a pragmatist uh, from the EU side of the table, um, their appetite for creating something unique for Britain may be constrained uh, and they will be looking very clearly at what precedents do we have. Uh, and Norway uh, is certainly better than nothing. <laughs> So uh, you would be putting, it would be effectively gambling that the sum total of the EU's wisdom in the matter of workers' rights and related issues was okay. It would be taking that gamble. I, I, I find it fascinating that people talk um, about, or certainly some politicians in Britain talk about the EU dictating what rights we have. The whole point is that it is a safety net. It, they are minimum rights. Every national government is completely free and sovereign to improve on those rights. And in some cases, we've managed to achieve that um, under Labour governments and so on. We've improved. On, uh, historically, we have a strong record on health and safety, though that's under pressure. Uh, but, you know, we have a good framework of rights. We can go beyond these minimums. But the key point is that competition shouldn't be conducted unfairly on the back of pitting workers against each other and undercutting workers' rights. That's why we want a level playing field. Um, a very kind of interesting point, again, about consumers' rights. And um, I think in Britain, because... Overall, our record on investment is so poor. 
and our productivity is so poor uh, that there are some companies who have taken the decision that they it's actually cheaper because wages are so low to keep workers on than invest in automation you know it's it is kind of bizarre as others have commented you go into the city of london and you will see all these or into east london all these new tech startups side by side with car washes where people are not even getting paid the minimum wage who are basically gangmastered you know car washes that actually could be highly automated teams of workers uh, being exploited uh, because because it, they, their employer can, basically. So, um, again, there's, there's no kind of... Uh, there's no one path, and it's up to us as a society to choose which path we want. But uh, I like the idea of also thinking about um, satisfying jobs and also satisfying a satisfying service for a consumer and something that's good for the planet too, hopefully. Okay, just time for a couple more, one or two more. So one here, one at the back, one, so we'll take three. Okay, one, two, three. Yeah. Short and sharp if you can, so we'll... Okay. Uh, just looking from the other side of the, the sea there, it, there's a certain amount of irony about this hand-wringing about workers' rights and in Britain, when for so many years a lot of people in the continent have been looking at England, no, Great Britain, as a more or less a pain in the neck, <laughs> and uh, being the main culprit in the first financial sectors and other things that are dragging their feet and holding back the EU as yeah. far as workers' rights. Yeah. And now. I mean, there's quite a few people in Europe are saying, well, you know, eh, break, break, get rid of it. Yeah. I mean, they've been holding everything back. Yeah. So I can imagine now it would be kind of difficult for you to go back and say, well, can you help us? Okay, fair point. Man at the back. Hello, my name is Bill Flaherty. I'm from Ireland and I um, work at the higher education as an accountant. Um, three, three quick points. Um, billion pound is a lot of money. Thousand million. Everyone was very critical of why the Tories gave a billion pounds to British constituents in Northern Ireland. How many billion pounds, how many thousand million pounds do you think it's okay for British taxpayers and your members to hand over to the European Union in order to start talks? Second question. Um, you talk about people who've come here and established their lives here, paid taxes here, should have the right to stay. That's been, grand, that's been offered, it's been almost unconditional, it's been offered, it's available to people who've been here and want to stay. What about the people who've come here and maybe wouldn't be able to prove that they've paid tax, wouldn't be able to show any evidence of having paid taxes? I'm talking about the large numbers of people who perhaps work in the informal economy, the people that were gangmastered into working in those car washes. Should they have full residency rights? Sometimes, and the European Union are demanding residency rights that had exceed British citizens. Mm. And my brief third, third question. My third, my third very brief point, very, very briefly. You talk about we don't know what it's going to be like from week to week, three, four, five weeks ahead. What we do know is what it has been like in the last three or four years for austerity, for people's workers' rights. And it's been really bad. And it's been really bad while in the European Union. What makes you think that 
the European Union is actually serving the interests of the people of this country, mm. the many other countries around, around Europe, mm. and the workers, workers at the moment. Mm. Okay. okay. Right. And there was one very, I hope somebody's short, very, in, very short in the middle. Yep. Go, hang on, wait for the um, microphone. Just a very short question. Um, we talked a fair bit about um, deal, no deal from a UK perspective. What's your sense about how it looks from the other side of the table? Could the EU yeah. afford not to have a deal? Could they walk away? Okay. I mean, starting with that one, I mean, my, my sense is that those involved in negotiations and supporting negotiations from the EU side are a bit perplexed by some of uh, the noise around new de no deal here. I mean, my own view would be that it would be sensible for any party to make sensible preparations for any eventuality, you know, as a negotiator again, I would expect that to happen. But there's a difference between that and kind of, you know, taking your shoe off and banging the table as if that's the preferred destination. Um, and I do think we have to be uh, those of us who are concerned about the path we're being led down need to be conscious that there are those who positively want that as the destination for their own reasons and their own agenda. Um, and I think that needs calling out because I don't believe that's in anybody's interests. Um, uh, th there were points made about, uh, you know, the awkward member of the family who's uh, never really been an enthusiastic member and um, perhaps views that maybe we'd be better off without. I mean, of course, it's not just about the UK. Um, uh, there have been, to my knowledge, plenty of discussions about a two-speed Europe. Uh, again, for the ETUC's part, we... Uh, instinctively didn't like that idea of uh, two divisions um, and two speeds. Uh, the accession countries, the position they're in, the politics, the different, you know, what's been happening in terms of the complexion of governments around Europe, I think it's much more complicated than just the UK. Uh, but, but without doubt, yes, I mean, I have... Uh, that kind of sense of the UK always wanting a unique arrangement or a unique opt-out is certainly um, a concern I've picked up on too. Um, on the issues that were raised by uh, the gentleman at the back, um, I mean, you, you raised kind of important and detailed issues around how much then, and uh, citizens' rights. Uh, I mean, my sense from what David Davis was saying, I think it was today, is it's going to be more than we thought it was, I think mm. was the phrase, something like that he used. And of course, that's because I think when you get to the point where David Davis is talking in those terms, I think it's because it's not just a case of writing a check, is it? it this is about what does it do to our economy? How do you build good faith with negotiating partners you want to trade with in the future? And the value of uh, getting a good deal far, far outweighing the number of noughts on that check. So, I mean, my sense was that was a kind of attempt to get us into a more realistic position. And as you quite rightly point out, yeah, you know, 
membership of the EU was a hard sell when uh, people felt there hadn't been a new agenda uh, to match the challenges that ordinary working people were facing. Uh, you could say that in terms, about, in terms of domestic politics too. But from my perspective as a trade unionist, looking around the world, what are the alternative models? What are the alternative trade deals? I look at the United States, where protectionism is clearly uh, important to the president's approach, but also where there is massive inequality, uh, where you know, there is real hardship amongst ordinary working people, where women have hardly any rights. They have a baby, they have to keep on working. People constantly on temporary contracts. I mean, it is rough for working people as a model. Russia, you know, well, we can have that discussion, but again, you know, rocketing inequality. China, authoritarianism, no free trade unions. There are not too many models around the world that are better than uh, the social market, imperfect though it may be. And as, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's position, somebody was talking about his enthusiasm during the campaign, but the position of Labour was remain and reform. Uh, so nobody's saying, I think, that it's perfect. But in terms of choices uh, and where capitalism has gone in different parts of the world, I think it is the best one. Great. Okay. Uh, thank you for that. We must um, finish. Uh, uh, it's just a fraction after eight o'clock. Um, I'll just say a couple of words before I thank uh, Francis. I mean, you know, there's no question that the uh, historic decision by the UK voters to leave the European Union is going to provide um, fodder for policy-making, debate, and discussion for, well, choose your number of years ahead, uh, some time to come. Um, the European Institute and others here at the LSE, including the Institute of Public Affairs, are trying to you know, create opportunities to hear all points of view. Uh, we don't just hear um, those from organizations who um, are on balance not enthusiastic about Brexit. We have people who are in favor of Brexit speaking as well, just for the avoidance of doubt. But this evening, I think we've heard a very clear exposition on behalf of um, six million workers represented by the TUC of the thought-through position of the TUC on this very complex issue. Um, my final thoughts, uh, had I had the chance to ask another question, which I won't, just say it now, is that I can see in all of this, and the discussion this evening further convinces me of this, that there is, of course, just the slightest risk that far from everybody getting what they want out of a negotiation and what is a deal-making process, there is a slight risk nobody does. I mean, that is the slight risk that people who voted for Brexit, for perfectly respectable reasons, don't get what they were hoping and because they're all expecting lots of different things. And those who wanted to remain in the EU feel that they don't get what they want either. So there is that sort of underlying worry, I think, looking ahead for the whole political system, whatever our politics, whatever our views. Anyway, it's been a great evening. I'd like to thank you, Francis, for coming and visiting us. And thank you.